The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So um, welcome to our third session on... We could mute. Uh, okay. There we go. So um, we just wanted to start, as we often do, with a little bit of a... Um, Catching up from the previous session, if anyone has comments or questions about the suttas that we read or any of the material we've covered up to now or just really anything on the topic, um, this would be a great time before we move forward with today's material. And feel free to raise your blue hand or really you could just unmute if you feel comfortable doing that. Hi, this is Laura. Um, I, I just want to thank all of you for this uh, wonderful Sutta studies. And I was very encouraged when uh, you answered Chris's question uh, that, you know, this is going to be an ongoing program uh, for the coming year. And the reason it's very personal to me because um, I I inspired to be a Bai in the Dharma, and I'm going to start a two-year meditation training program with Jack Confield and Tara Brock, and they tend to be on more of the secular mindfulness spectrum. So I just thought, well, it's okay. Maybe I would, it's just like learning another language. And so, you know, so I'd be kind of bilingual. I'm like deeply rooted in the Dharma, but then there's all the other modern psychological terms. And so who knows, you know, maybe I can be a bridge or whatever, but, you know, it's the Dharma that gives me the nourishment. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Laura. That's very lovely to hear. Other thoughts, questions, reflections? Consequences of our homework assignment? Rereading <laughs> Chris, I see uh, you leaning forward. Yeah, since my name was evoked, I I just found I've just found this group um, in our group uh, breakout groups to be pretty amazing us moving through and speaking because as each person spoke, it was almost as if I was speaking. It sort of captured a big mind kind of feeling within the Sangha speaking to this point. And I've, I've certainly felt that before, but it was very strong in the past two breakout groups we have. And I just wanted to offer that out. It was like, yeah, I need more of this, especially in these times. So anyway, thank you very much for having this group. Great. You know, some of what I hear in these comments is a, a quality of equanimity in that equanimity is a, a quality that makes the mind bigger and allows it to hold all kinds of different things that are um, may seem at some level to be disparate, but they're not really. So um, it seems like you guys are absorbing the material. Mira. 
Good morning and good afternoon and uh, maybe good evening. Uh, I, I thought this was a good time to slip in. Um, speaking of the simile of the cloth, um, that as a, as a relatively experienced dyer, I want to mention that dyeing a stained cloth is great. And um, not only that, but that the, um, you know, kashaya, this word that has a lot of different meanings, um, but it's a stain. And the Buddha's robes are referred to as kashaya and this color, there's a color kashaya, but the idea is taking an impure cloth, that the robes are made from dirty things. So it, it, it's, um, again, another angle on equanimity, but I think I'm mentioning it because I feel like there's a potential reading of the clean. It needs to be clean to begin with, to be dyed. That's a kind of idea of purity, which some people might feel like is a, well, we're, you know, I'm, I, I'm that, that some people might have a sense of self, which is stained and that that's okay to then enter the sea of the Dharma. It's not sort of from a place of purity. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, I'll invite other comments from the other teachers, but um, what comes to mind as you say that is the sutta that points out that the mind is naturally luminous and that all the defilements are visiting um, in some way. And so they're, you know, they're always subject to appearing and disappearing at various times, right? And and we might also distinguish between purity as a single sort of state from a purification, which is an action verb. And purification is wonderful, and purity, I think, is a little suspect. Yeah. So let's see if anyone else has any comments to that among the teachers. Okay. Um, Ram. Good morning, and thank you for this opportunity. Uh, a comment and a question. Um, as I was reading the sutta studies, these are pretty powerful. It takes quite a bit of time for me to contemplate and absorb. Uh, I would be very grateful if some thought in the teachings today can we win uh, being cognizant of hindrances as a part of this practice that continues to be my blind spot in my practice in uh, many cases. But in the practice of equanimity, uh, I think uh, Mira just mentioned about being aware of my own preconditions and biases and what it leads towards hindrances. Uh, I, I, I couldn't reconcile fully in my <laughs> preparation for this morning those aspects. Any comments that you can weave in, I would deeply appreciate that. Okay, thank you. Yes, I think the... the um being able to hold various things that are in the mind is a big part of strengthening our awareness. And as, you know, mindfulness develops, um, the more we do it, the stronger it gets. And the stronger it gets, the, the more we're able to hold things. I think of it as kind of like a level, you know, like there's a level and then a wave that comes in that's down below the level of our, the strength of our awareness is no problem. We can ride that out. But every now and then these things come that are higher than our strength of awareness. And so then we just know, okay, we'll keep, 
will keep strengthening. You know, I have one just thought. It it took me a, a minute or two uh, to think about the the white cloth. You know, it's funny uh, the purity or purification are, are are stressed perhaps in in our readings, but something that strikes me is the how rare white cloth was at the time, and I'm reminded of uh, a verse of poetry: "Twasn't twasn't a different lifetime, one of toil and blood, and blackness was a virtue." The road was full of mud. That's a, a phrase from the Nobel, Nobel poet, um, Nobel laureate poet, Bob Dylan. And, uh, but I think, I think the rarity of white cloth is something that um, at the time when in fact, not, not just roads, but um, mud was in, uh, uh, mud and, and dust were everywhere and dust and mud are referred to in the, in the suttas frequently. So anyway, just another thought. It doesn't have to be just the purity of it, but the rareness of it too. Oh gosh, I see Natalie and Bonnie. Why don't we take um, uh, just those two and, and, and hopefully they can be somewhat brief. Um, so Natalie. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could say something about how we might read the simile of the deft butcher is something I really struggle with um, as a vegan and ethical vegan for 25 years. I really found it difficult to think about thinking about the elements as a process of violence or butchering or dissection. Um, and I wonder if more could be said about what's being got at there. Okay, so I think you're referring to the elements as they're described in the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, is that correct? MN10, where the image given is of the cow, yeah, the butcher at the crossroads. Yes, it's as if a deaf butcher or butcher's apprentice were to kill a cow and sit at the crossroads with the meat cut into portions. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, um, I'll see if anyone else has a comment first among the teachers. I could respond, but I've, no. <laughs> okay, so the, um, yeah, this is, a, this is a vivid and powerful image. And I think it's maybe meant to be. Um, so the, the practice of the elements um, goes toward the understanding of not self. That is the aim of that practice. It's seen in MN10, and it's also seen actually in MN62, the one where we that we were quoting related to the elements of make your meditation like the earth and so forth. Just before that section that we dealt with in class, the Buddha teaches his son Rahula about not identifying with the body because Rahula was a young, beautiful young man uh, at that time, very handsome, probably. Um, and, but he was a monk, and he had a little conceit about his appearance. Um, and so the Buddha was helping him with that. And my sense is that um, these teachings, at least in this context of the elements, are pointing us toward um, seeing our bodies more as just part of nature. You know, it has the same elements as the earth, as the water, as the trees. So there is a sort of a... 
um, as you point to, as an ethical vegan, a sense of unity with nature. Um, and we're not something special and something um, uh, that's not subject to those same rules, shall we say. And so I think this, um, I don't know that it has to do so much with butchery as with not uh, seeing the body as something inherently um, special and me. Does that help a little bit to point toward what it's aiming at? I think it's, yeah, it's a big, big question and there's more to explore there, but maybe that's what I can say now. Okay, um, Bonnie, fa fairly quickly, thanks. One of the last things you said at the last meeting was when one recognizes equanimity to lean into it. And I'm aware that that's a difficulty for me, um, not only recognizing it, but actually allowing it to be and acknowledging that and leaning into it. And I'm wondering if you might say a little more about that. Who was it who was talking about the leaning in? Was that in, um, that was David. Okay, go for it. You know, um, one way to answer that is actually to plunge into the next teaching, uh, which Please. falls to me. Uh, but I think the, the, the idea that when, whenever things arise in the mind, and there's, there are several suttas that talk about this explicitly, that there's sort of a choice uh, that we, we can notice that our thoughts tend to move toward greater freedom or, or maybe toward greater tightness, greater stress, greater suffering. And that the subtle inclining of the mind we do toward freedom over and over again creates, creates a um, pattern of response, a habit of response that uh, is, is wholesome, that uh, snowballs or builds on itself and that issues forth in, in skillful action. So I think, I think that's what I was getting at. And um, this can have very subtle uh, expression in the meditation practice. And uh, that in a way, if I can make this a transition to the, to the teaching, the first teaching segment, um, I see my colleagues nodding, I think. Uh, I'll do that and I'll, I'll just try to kind of keep pointing to that as, as we go forward. So we wanted today, having discussed over the course of this week, the way that equanimity appears in the text as a capstone, um, both in uh, the, the wisdom practices, and we'll, we'll show that slide again and share it, uh, and in the Brahma Viharas, so too it appears in the further development of the meditation practice. And uh, this is particularly found in discussions of um, sort of the, the wise meditation practice described, for example, in the last three factors of the Eightfold Path, where wise samadhi, which results in a, a, uh, a pure and clear form of equanimity, uh, is in a sense the capstone of the Eightfold Path. Uh, that is <clears throat> the last three factors in the Eightfold Path, wise effort, wise sati, wise mindfulness, and uh, wise samadhi, uh, have this um, have this same place, and um, samadhi <clears throat> um, is sometimes uh, translated, sometimes glossed as concentration. In fact, that's probably its most um, most frequent uh, tr translation. 
I, I, I leave it untranslated. I think that's becoming maybe more, more done. And I think there are certainly um, other translations that can point us in, in um, sort of um, useful directions, including um, collectedness of mind. As the mind settles in meditation and as to bring in this theme of inclining the mind or leaning in toward freedom or greater ease, um, the mind tends to open, it tends to still, it tends to become collected, uh, it tends to become unified in, in various ways. And um, these various depths or various states of mind that develop as the meditation deepens and stills are, are described in the text as falling into a progression of four or more um, states that take the name the jhanas, J-H-A-N-A. And um, this is a description in the text that seems to capture uh, a mode of experience. And it's worth emphasizing that what comes first or came first <laughs> it was the meditation, meditative experience and that it's then captured in words, chanted, passed on orally and eventually committed to language. So I like to, I think it's useful to be very free and open with what happens in the mind and the way we characterize what happens in it as it becomes more collected, becomes more unified, becomes more settled with time. And we can say that it falls into these four jhanic places or states or modes, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to. And the transition in these, many of which are very familiar to uh, all of us here, um, can have various different ways of appearing. So in our discussion today, we're talking about something that are sometimes called the sutta jhanas. That is the jhanas as described in the uh, suttas of the Pali Canon. And we'll, we'll take a look at one of the, one such description, the standard stock description in a way, uh, in just a moment. But um, I'll give you a sense of what we see happening in these descriptions of the way that the mind sort of accesses these apparently natural and kind of innate capacities of mind to become very still, very focused, very collected, very, uh, very much at ease, very clear, um, very, very, um, very ready to let go deeply. And the basic progression uh, that's described, and it's interesting how frequently we turn to metaphors using water, is a little bit like if you're at the ocean and you're kind of wading in, not the Pacific, not Mavericks, you know, but maybe the Pacific at San Simeon Bay, where you're kind of wading in and you go down and you're aware that, you know, whoops, you've kind of fall down a little ledge and then you're a little deeper in. And you sort of naturally, as you move out, kind of find yourself deeper and more deeply immersed. What the, what's described is that in the first process of meditation, very familiar to us, we use a fair amount of effort in redirecting attention to here and now, using the breath as an anchor in the here and now, or another bodily function or the, bodily more, the body more broadly. And then uh, as we move forward, sometimes there can be quite an upwelling of um, um, bodily content. And sometimes it, it sometimes can be a buzzing or a sense of pleasure, sometimes felt at the fingertips or the lips where we have so many nerve endings, sometimes comfortable, sometimes pleasant, sometimes um, accompanied by maybe a certain subtle restlessness. That tends to ease off with time and uh, emerging more strongly can be a sense of uh, slower, maybe a glow of more mental contentment. 
And again, nothing here that's probably um, unfamiliar to, to you. And that even this contentment of mind can become very still to the point where equanimity arises in a very clear, very, um, very uh, distilled or concentrated form. So there's a process by which certain aspects of mind that we're familiar with, uh, that we, that we uh, become aware of, are left behind or become very still and equanimity emerges. Again, sort of taking this capstone position. And because time is short, um, and while I could go on and on, that's a very um, sort of, over, you know, sort of a general overview of what, what happens. The mind getting progressively stiller, leaving behind some of the efforting, um, turning toward more allowing or more inclining, more turning toward in a very subtle way so that the mind becomes increasingly clear and um, uh, clear, awake, alert um, uh, in a profound way. But let's take a look at the at uh, Majjhima Nikaya 119. And as I go through this, and I'll have to do it fairly quickly, I think some of you may be familiar with this text. I want to emphasize what's familiar in it, as well as a couple other things. And I'll go through it very quickly. This is the uh, sutta devoted to mindfulness of the body, and it directly follows Majjhima Nikaya 118, mindfulness of the in and out breathing. Um, the Buddha is staying in uh, one of his familiar places and gives directions on how to establish mindfulness of the body. And you will recognize these. You go to a place where it's quiet. You sit down cross-legged. You bring attention to here and now. And you begin to focus attention on the breath. You bring attention to the whole body. Maybe you do a body scan. You take your meditation into a walking practice or do it when you're lying down. You take the mindful awareness of um, your experience to all your activities, all your daily activities. When I first read passages like this, I have to tell you, I had this just spark of awareness. This is where these instructions come from that are so familiar that I hear all the time on every podcast I listen to or every talk I go to or every guided meditation. Oh, they come from these texts and there's so much more here. I've just kind of skimmed over that, but they're so rich in the additional detail they provide and the possibilities they open up, the invitations they make. And then, and just a warning to my colleagues, I'm gonna go over by a couple minutes, I can just see it. Um, apology, apologies in advance, um, <clears throat> and fair warning. Uh, and then it talks about in meditation, a meditation, uh, a, a meditator, this is an audience of uh, monastics, of, of followers of the Buddha, that in the first sort of deepening of meditation, there's a place where the mind is constantly replacing attention, rebalancing, coming back to um, the present moment. And this is um, compared in this simile to a bathroom attendant, again, a deft bathroom attendant, who um, makes, in the way we would maybe need bread, uh, a ball of soap. And it talks about how in kneading this ball of bath power, it becomes soaked and saturated with the moisture, with water, 
spread inside and out, but not so much moisture as any oozes out. And in the same way, as we set in meditation, we enjoy the seclusion we've provided ourselves um, in, and we keep bringing attention back to the here and now in a way that suffuses the body with, um, with uh, attention and with, with awareness. And we start to get these, this familiar kind of, um, um, what I want to say, a ringing of a bell almost in the, in the rhythm of it. This too is how a mendicant develops mindfulness of the body. As meditation becomes stiller, this rapture that I talked about, this sense of physical pleasure or um, uh, awakeness can come to be very prominent. And the comparison given here is like sitting in a spring in which, uh, or a body of water that is fed only by a spring and feeling this sort of delightful um, upwelling of um, energetic ease that steeps, drenches, fills, and spreads throughout the leg. And in the same way, a meditator steeps, fills, and spreads the body with this same uh, rapture. And this too is how we develop mindfulness of the body. As this fades away, there seems to be um, a, a glow referred to in this translation as bliss, this sort of more mental contentment that can, that can arise. And uh, this too comes to drench, steep, fill, and spread through the body. And again, this is a, now this, this contentment is free of the, the previous sort of maybe more jangly or more energetic physical uh, sensations. The simile given here is that this is like being a lotus in a pool of water, thriving underwater. And from the tip to the root, we're drenched, steeped, filled, and soaked with the cool water of this refreshing pond. There's no part of us that's not refreshed in this way. This too is how a mendicant develops mindfulness of the body. And then finally, when the mind is very still, very collected, very um, brought to a place of um, groundedness. And in this case, in this sutta, in this context, grounded in the experience of the body. Um, when we've let go of a concern with pleasure and pain, maybe let go of a for and against or a sense of preference. Um, neither resisting things nor proving things. What fills our experience is pure equanimity. And this equanimity fills the, fills, fills the body, um, spreads through the body with pure bright mind. And here the simile given for, for equanimity is a meditator sitting covered from head to foot with a white cloth. No part of the body that's not spread over with the white cloth. And in the same way, the meditator spreads their body through with pure bright mind. No part of the body not filled with this pure bright mind. The mind becomes stilled internally. It settles, unifies, and becomes immersed in samadhi. And that too is how a mendicant develops mindfulness of the body. And just in closing, point out that in this state of equanimity that develops in the deepening meditation practice, um, things can be seen with great clear clarity. There can be the clear seeing that we associate with the, particularly with the insight tradition, but with uh, these practices derived from the ancient texts. 
and that we become practitioners become capable of realizing anything that can be realized. In other words, not only do we see things clearly, but that clear seeing that's, that's made possible by the, the equanimity um, can help us be more awake in, in the world. I'm going to have to leave it there. Much more could be said, but I'm going to pass it on to Diana to uh, guide us in some meditation. <laughs> 